church, third grade and under. Happy Father's Day to all the fathers in the room. Thank you, thank you. There's lots of fathers. There's fathers who uh, have been made fathers by uh, physical birth, and then there's fathers who've been made fathers by birth of the heart, and uh, we celebrate all of you, even the surrogate fathers. Yes, today is my wife's birthday, and I'm very thankful for her. All I'll say is she spent about half of her life with me. That's what I'll, I'll leave it at. Um, and we did have uh, the news uh, of Billy's homecoming, and uh, 94 years. You know, uh, a couple weeks ago, my dad and I went to go see Billy, and uh, she was awake and alert, and we had a full conversation, and we were reminiscing, and in the middle of our conversation, she looked at me and said, you're ornery. <laughs> I said, well, you would know after who you married with Bond, but um, it was wonderful, and God gave me a specific psalm to read to her, and she was quoting it as I was reading it. It was like God's word was permeating her heart and soul, and she's home in heaven and finished the race and we're so thankful for her, and praise God for Billy. Um, if you have your Bibles this morning, you can turn to Zechariah chapter 4. Today's message is entitled, The Lampstand and Two Olive Trees. I know that's uh, a unique title, doesn't tell you much, but it's a unique prophetic vision as well. I'm so thankful for Alan Nagy having shared his testimony last week. If you didn't get a chance to be here or to watch it, uh, I encourage you to do that. His testimony's amazing about the journey that God has had him on, things that he's been through that have been explained and things that have been unexplained, but how God builds our faith through the process. And uh, next week I will be gone taking the kids to youth camp, me and Brianna Whiteman, and uh, excited to have... Uh, my, my partner's and ministry's daughter coming with me as God is calling her to ministry as well, and we're going to have a good time, but uh, Rob Milney will be sharing a message and part of his testimony with you as well. If you don't know Rob, you will definitely get to know Rob. Uh, he's been a part of this church a long time and is a good friend and brother, so uh, make sure you, you take the time to be here. Um, if you remember, we've been in Haggai, the book of Haggai, and now the book of Zechariah. These are two prophets who are sent to the same people at the same time. They're coming out of 70 years of exile. They've returned to their homeland, and everything is devastated. Their homes, the city, the walls, the temple, the structure, everything. And so God's vision that he's giving to these prophets is how do we start over again? How do we rebuild? How do we reestablish things God's way? And so in one night, Zechariah has eight visions. Uh, man, that must have been a long night. Have you ever had the, one of those nights where it just seems like you have dream upon dream upon dream? Usually it's me with a fever. But for him, he has eight visions in one night. And so far in, in Zechariah chapter 1, we see God calling the people to return home. Don't be fearful to leave Babylon. Come home. Even though it looks devastated, I've got great plans for you. Don't overlook small beginnings. And then in chapter 2, he encourages the people to not be fooled by previous borders. He's saying as you're measuring the city, as you're making your plans, go above and beyond what you think you're capable and possible of because with me, I can make things go far beyond what you think is possible. And then two weeks ago in chapter 3, 
Zechariah had a specific vision about Jeshua the priest, where he saw this moment uh, in eternity where Satan himself was accusing Jeshua of all the awful things he's done, basically telling God the Father he can't be high priest, he can't lead the people during this time period because of who he is and what he's done. And God says, I reject your accusations. He stands, uh, Jeshua stands before him dirty, and God says, I'm going to make him clean, and I'm going to establish him, and I'm, I'm going to equip him for the work that I've called him to do. And you have this beautiful foreshadowing of the branch of Jesus Christ that will come one day. In the previous book of Haggai, you have two leaders that come up throughout the book. These two leaders are Jeshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the, the governor during the time. Now, I don't know many Zerubbabels this day. Parents who, who still have future children coming maybe consider the name Zerubbabel because uh, uh, it's fun to say. And it'll be fun to yell at, hey, Zerubbabel! Um, but anyway, the focus is on these two guys. They're the two key leaders during this time and place. It's an enormous task. How do you reestablish worship after the devastation? How do you reestablish a government and a nation? And so we saw that Jeshua was under attack, under attack directly from Satan. And so we're kind of left with a question. Does Zechariah have a message for Zerubbabel just like Haggai did. And so that's where we're jumping in, in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. It says, And the angel who had been talking with me returned and woke me as though I had been asleep. What do you see now? He asked. I answered, I see a solid gold lampstand with a bowl of oil on top of it. Around the bowl are seven lamps, each having seven spouts with wicks. And I see two olive trees, one on each side of the bowl. Then I asked the angel, What are these, my lord? What do they mean? Don't you know, the angel asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, this is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, may God bless it, may God bless it. Lord, I pray that as we dig into your word today, what wasn't exactly clear to Zerubbabel, to Zechariah right away would become clear to us as well. That, that we know that every time we get into your word, the challenge is not the power of the word to impact our life. The challenge is the willingness of our heart to receive it and allow it to mold us and shape us. And so, Holy Spirit, you're speaking. Let us listen and obey. In your name we pray. Amen. I find it interesting that the vision begins with the angel waking up Zechariah. It's a dream within a dream, right? He wakes up in his vision from one dream and is still in a dream, but it's something different. So when we look at Scripture, guys, every detail is important. There's so many things that God has done over the centuries that isn't included in Scripture. So anything that is included in the Scripture is essential for life. And how the story is told is just as essential. So not, let's not look past the fact that he's waking from the last vision and, and coming uh, into a new vision, a new time. So why is this detail necessary? I think it's to delineate the two visions. The vision in chapter 3 is something that's in this courtroom setting in heaven in eternity. It's dealing with the Yeshua and his calling. 
Uh, that's the focus of the vision. But this is something new. This is something separate. This is something that has kind of a clean start, a fresh start. And so when you wake up from a dream, there's this cognitive recognition that what you're now experiencing in the moment is not connected to what you just dreamed. When you were dreaming, you were immersed in something. It almost could even seem like reality. And then when you wake up, you're like, oh, no, I'm, I'm on to something else. There's, there's something new going on. The best way I know how to explain this is like going to a movie. Remember when we used to go to movies, right? Do you remember the experience of a movie theater? You go in. It's a dark room. Maybe you got your popcorn and your drink or whatever else. And the lights dim down. It's dark. There's this huge screen in front of you. Uh, and you're just saturated in what you're seeing and what you're hearing. Recently, I went to go see the new Top Gun movie. And so in this movie, it's really intense. You know, you're, you're watching these fighter pilots fly hundreds of miles per hour, and you're, you're engaged with this for two hours. And I remember leaving the movie theater, coming into the sunlight, getting in my car, and driving 25 miles per hour out of the mall. There's a huge delineation between those two experiences, Right? One is fully engaged, but that, that's past. That's not reality, and then I step into reality. So that's kind of how I want us to approach these two visions. Both are, are true, but there's a clear distinction between both of them. This new vision is a solid gold lampstand with a bowl on top of it with seven wicks lit coming off of it. And next to the lampstand are two olive trees. Now, Zechariah doesn't know what this vision is about, and thankfully, he's not afraid to ask. The funny thing is, the angel is surprised that he doesn't know. He said, what does this vision mean? The angel says, you don't know? Like, you should know this. You should get this. So if Zechariah should know immediately what this lampstand and this bowl and these olive trees are about, maybe we should know what they're all about too, immediately. So, where, where should Zechariah have gotten this? When the law was given to Moses at Mount Sinai hundred years prior, he gave him the instruction. We know the Ten Commandments, the, the law, the, the instruction for how to establish a government and all the rest, but also within the book of Exodus, you have uh, established um, Worship. This is the tabernacle. This is the instructions for what the tabernacle is to look like, how it's to be built, all the details, the outer court, the inner court, the, the temple veil, the Holy of Holies. This is where you put the Ark of the Covenant. And there are lots of elements to temple worship. And within the, the, the description of what God was going to establish in the tabernacle is a golden lampstand from Exodus 25, verses 31 through 39. It says, Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold, Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece. The base, center stamp, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches will have three lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete the, with buds and petals. Craft the center stem of the lampstand with four lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. There will also be an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must all be one piece with the center stem, and they must be hammered from pure gold. Then make the seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect their light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must also be made of pure gold. You will need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lampstand and 
its accessories. God's pretty descriptive here, right? He's really specific as to what this lampstand is supposed to look like. He's not saying, hey, just use something that you pillaged from Egypt. He doesn't say, use your great-grandmother's. No, he's saying, I want something that's made pure. It's to run on pure olive oil. It's to be made from pure gold and every intricate detail I want you to follow. Is God less intentional about our worship today? I just want us to think about that question. If he's so focused on the details for a lampstand in the holy place, are we being just as intentional in how we approach worship with him today? This Lamp had a specific fun- function described in Leviticus 24, 1-4. The Lord said to Moses, Command the people of Israel to bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to keep the lamps burning continually. This is the lampstand that stands in the tabernacle in front of the inner curtain that shields the Ark of the Covenant. Aaron must keep the lamps burning in the Lord's presence all night. This is a permanent law for you, and it must be observed from generation to generation. Aaron and the priest must tend the lamps on the pure gold lampstand continually in the Lord's presence. This lamp and lampstand is a big deal. It's to illumine the area that has the Lord's presence. It's what we would call a menorah today. And so most of the time when we see a menorah, it's associated with Hanukkah, right? Where they they light the different candles. And if you know the story of, of how um, the celebration of Hanukkah came back with uh, Judas Maccabeus and all the rest. It's really interesting, but it all comes back to this specific light, this specific thing designed to, to light up in the presence of God. It ran on pure olive oil, and it was to stay constantly lit, just like the, you know, the, the tomb of the unknown soldier that we have today, this perpetual flame. This was supposed to be lit and continually lit all the time. But if you know Israel's history, there were time periods where this wasn't followed. During the time of Judges, it's one of the darkest periods in Israel's history where they move further and further away from obedience to God. They allow idolatry in, and so they allow the culture around them to dictate their beliefs and their actions and their thoughts and their words, and so they start losing their faith. And so it becomes so bad that the priesthood themselves are not following the process God's called them to do. And so in the midst of, of this period, as you, as you end the book of Judges and you start the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel starts at this awful, terrible time in Judges. And this woman, Hannah, can't have a child. And so she tells God, if you give me a child, I'll give him back to you. She has Samuel. And so she gives Samuel to, to, the, to the priest Eli. And so Samuel grows up within the tabernacle, around the tabernacle in worship. And so as you get into 1 Samuel, guess where Samuel's bedroom is? It's within this Holy of Holies area. In the tabernacle, a place that no one was supposed to, to be very long and rarely spent in that space, but yet they set up his bedroom in there, which is really weird, right? Maybe things are so bad that even in the tabernacle, that's the safest place to keep a kid. But 1 Samuel 3.3 says, The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was sleeping in the, in the tabernacle near the ark of God. I believe this is in 1 Samuel because it's metaphoric for how the people were living before God. They were allowing this light that was supposed to be perpetually lit in God's presence to go out. It seems somewhat daily. And so that is where they were. That was the condition of the people. 
This is the background history we know or need to know as we look at this passage. Now, the description we get in Exodus is really different from the description we get in Zechariah, isn't it? In, in Exodus, you get this stem with, with six arms coming off of it and all lit. But here in Zechariah, you have the same thing, a golden lampstand symbolizing something that's supposed to be in God's presence, but it's a bowl, and the seven lights are on wicks coming out of the bowl. And then on top of it, you have these olive trees. Why is this lampstand designed differently? Well, we're going to explore some possibilities. I don't want to answer this question right away, but I want you to consider it. Again, all the details are important. And so the reason why it's a bowl instead of the arms, we'll get to that. But Zechariah's question is our question. What does it mean? And so uh, God answers him in verses 6 and 7. He says, This is what the Lord says to Zerubbabel. It is not by force, nor by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord of heaven's armies. Nothing, not even a mighty mountain, will stand in Zerubbabel's way. It will become a level plain before him. And when Zerubbabel sets the final stone of the temple in place, the people will shout, May God bless it. May God bless it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm having trouble seeing how this vision of olive trees and a lampstand has anything to do with Zerubbabel. Like the angel says, you don't get it? And he's like, no, I don't get it. And then he tells him this vision, and I'd be like, I still don't know the connection here. I mean, this is a great vision for Zerubbabel, thank you very much, but how would I ever cross that bridge from what you're showing me? Why is this message to Zerubbabel? This is a light within the holy place of the temple. It sounds like a vision that you would give to a priest who's going to be working in this duty, right? But Zerubbabel's not going to do that. He's a governor. And so Zerubbabel shows up. He's kind of indirectly um, already in the book of Zechariah. In chapter 1, verse 16, God says, Measurements will be taken for the reconstruction of Jerusalem. That's Zerubbabel's job. In chapter 2, the focus is on a man, a young man that's measuring out the city. And, and God says, the, says, sends an angel to say, stop, you know what you're doing. Your dimensions are too small. You need to make it bigger. That's Zerubbabel again. And now here in chapter 4, Zerubbabel is the focus. So there's a common theme in chapter 1, in chapter 2, now here in chapter 4. And the theme is this. God saying, I am going to build something that has never been before. I'm going to blow the doors off what you expect or think is possible. He's saying, Zerubbabel, I've got something to tell you. And I love the passage. I mean, we quote it all the time. It is not by force, not by strength, but by my spirit. Zerubbabel, you are tasked with this huge, insurmountable uh, thing to do. It's a good thing. It's honorable. Anybody... Everybody says it should be done and nobody wants to do it and it's your task. But I'm going to make it possible. It's by the Spirit. Now this is important for any ruler to know or, or business owner or someone who's, who's leading in a church or in government. Maybe even your head of your household or whatever you're called to do. All of us need to hear this message. It's not by your might, not by your strength, but by your Spirit. It's our natural human tendency to say, okay, I can do this. I'm going to do it. And then once we mess up or get caught in a corner, we say, okay, God, can you help me? That's a backwards pattern. It's, it's like we all, when we write out our resume, we all write our, our job experience, 
our skill set, our training, our education. We write it down. Imagine if you're applying for a job and all you write on it is filled with the Spirit. That's what God's asking here. That's what he, exactly what he's asking. He's saying, all that other stuff, great, wonderful, but I don't want you to rely on that. We, we talked a couple weeks ago about why did he ask the disciples to pick up swords before the Garden of Gethsemane? So they weren't supposed to use them. So many times in my ministry as a pastor, I, I've wondered, God, why did you have me have four years of education at Asbury where I learned all these media skills and I don't use them? And he said, so you don't use them. You know? There, sometimes there's things that he gives us. And so the pattern here, not just for, for people who are in the church, but outside the church, people who are administration, people who are, are, are to establish the way their homes run, and everything else is based on God's spirit. What does he want you to do? What is he calling you to do? Because the problem is when we depend on our own strengths and abilities, we can compromise. We sometimes let our morals and our values slip. Sometimes we lie. Sometimes we don't give our best. Because that's the way the world works, right? That's the way the business world works. If you want to get ahead, you can't do things God's way all the time. And God says, no, 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 no. What I'm establishing, what I want to do in your life, what I want to last for generations, can't be your way by the world's rules. By my spirit. And so it's as if he's saying, don't rely on your methods or anyone else's. What you will accomplish will be possible through me and by me. And when I lead, no obstacle is too big. Not even a mountain can hinder my path and plan. And so we live this way. I don't know. Some of you I know what's going on in your life. But all of us have those mountains, right? Where we stand at the foot of it and we go, I'm supposed to go over that? Or around that? Or through that? How am I going to do this? You can't. <laughs> but by my spirit. God says, where you see a mountain, I see an open field. Run. Run through it. And we've seen God's faithfulness in that time and time again. Not only will you rebuild the city, he tells Zerubbabel, but you're going to have a part to play in the completion of the temple. He says, you're going to be the one to set in the last stone. And when you do, the people will praise me for it. I think that's the point. I think that's the point. God gives us abilities and talents and experiences and all the rest that we can start on our own, and maybe we can accomplish something where we can receive praise from men and something that will last a while but I think the point is, God says, I give you what I give you, so you give it back. And so when it is accomplished, I can get the glory. So when we start off our journey in our plans trusting him, we can never claim it for ourselves. Uh, Brianna's in a place where she just graduated from Asbury, my alma mater. Asbury grads together. And she's kind of at that place of she doesn't know where the next step is. And I remember, for me, it was the same thing. I didn't know what the next step was. It was, it was months. I, I ended up stocking shelves at Lowe's um, at nighttime and then worked at Olympics in Salt Lake City for two months. And that, of course, that didn't last. only lasted as long as the Olympics. But it was this process of God breaking me of what I thought I was called to do and what I was capable of. And it, it took almost a whole year to the point where God said, 
I want you to be a minister. I want you to be a youth pastor. And so he had to bring me to a point where I wasn't relying on my own strength and talents and abilities. <laughs> and I will tell you, when I interviewed in Elizabeth City for the youth pastor position, I cried in the interview because I said, I don't want to be here. I mean, this was I, that's never a good job interview, right? But my, my, my niece, Kaylee, was just born, and, and I was enjoying time with my family, and, and I thought my path was this way, but it was so clear that God was calling me to be a pastor, and it was in my DNA, and it was right there, and it was this blending of, I'm submitting to my call, but this was my plan, and, and it, was, it was clear to all of us in the room that I was supposed to take that position. The Holy Spirit fell because it wasn't by my might or my power, but by His Spirit. Don't rely. Don't make your plans. Or try to accomplish your task without the power and person of the Holy Spirit. He calls us to be beautifully dependent upon Him. A passionate pursuit of Him daily in prayer. My wife is an amazing cook. An amazing cook. And she's trying to teach my daughters how to bake and cook as well. There's a couple of my kids that don't take instruction real well, and they think they, they already know what they're doing. I have one kid that had a couple cooking classes, and she, she thinks she's an expert cook now. And so she doesn't measure things out. She doesn't get all the ingredients, everything else. And so my wife will come in the room and say, how did you end up here? And there's some times where she can repair what's been done after these ingredients have been blended and shouldn't be blended already or whatever portion possible. And there's other times she has to throw them away. That's us and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we run ahead saying, I got this. Sometimes he can fix the mess we started and sometimes he said, let's start all over again. Let's not make those mistakes. Let's dedicate our future plans to him and trust his perfect plan. So this is an awesome message, right? Zerubbabel, this is great. But what's with this lampstand and olive trees? Zechariah 4, 8 through 10. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Zerubbabel is the one who laid the foundation of this temple, and he will complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of heaven's armies has sent me. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hand. The seven lamps represent the eyes of the Lord that search all around the world. Now, this first message is clearly for Zerubbabel. I think the second message is for Zechariah. I don't know what kind of relationship uh, he, that Zechariah had with Zerubbabel. They could have been good friends. They could have hung out all the time. I don't know. Either way, what I interpret from this is that Zechariah is looking at Zerubbabel and saying, I don't know if this guy can do it. This is a huge task. And God's message to Zechariah in the midst of this is, don't decry the small things, right? He's the one who laid the foundation. He will complete it. And then you'll know that I've done this. Do not despise these small beginnings, for the Lord rejoices to see the work begin, to see the plumb line in Zerubbabel's hands. Now, you may look at the task ahead of you, each of us as individuals. Again, God is writing all of our stories. Part of our stories cross, because we're part of the same body here at Covenant, but there's certain things where it's just our story. And so all of us look ahead. It may be an illness. It may be a challenge at work. It may be a calling. I don't know what it is for you, but all of us have our mountain, and we say, this is impossible. Or we'll look behind us and say, that's all I've accomplished. And God says, 
Do not overlook the small things. God loves to use people who know they're inadequate to the task. Because he says, yes, I can use you. Yes, I can do some things. And so he delights at what you have in your hand. He says, now is the time to do the work. That's wonderful. Thank you, God, for affirming Zerubbabel to me. But what does that have to do with the lampstand? 11 through 14, as you get to the end of chapter 10, he, he mentions um, the, uh, that the eyes of the Lord go about, um, search from all the world. That's what, the, what the, the, the seven lamps represent. Then I asked the angel, what are these two olive trees on each side of the lampstand, and what are the two olive branches that pour out golden oil through the golden tubes? Don't you know, he asked. No, my Lord, I replied. Then he said to me, they represent the two anointed ones who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. Now, finally, we have an answer. But again, we've got to dig to really apply it. The olive trees are there feeding the bowl with olive oil to light the wicks to the golden tubes. That's what they're there for. They're, they're, they're pushing the olive oil directly from the trees right into the bowls. And the light itself is the eyes of the Lord that sees everything. The light of truth. What this tells me, guys, is those seven candles that are burning is the fact that God's truth lasts, that what he's planned will be accomplished because it's the perfect number seven. Nothing is going to change it. Nothing is going to deviate it. God sees, God knows, God wins. Do you need to hear that today? Let me say it again. God sees, God knows, God wins. can't be stopped. And the oil, how often is the oil associated with the Holy Spirit, right? The permeating presence of God's Spirit. When someone's anointed with oil, why oil instead of water? Because oil gets in every pore. It saturates. And it's not easily taken off. It becomes part of who you are. You know, you got oily hair, it's hard to clean out, right? You're, you're covered in oil. So the oil is God's presence, that helps set the blaze, that light, that truth going out. Now, the angel says they represent two anointed ones who stand in the court of the Lord of all the earth. Now, our natural tendency in the 21st century is sometimes to overthink passages of Scripture and try to get some elaborate prophetic understanding of what's happening here. Let's look at the book of Revelation and see what it says. Or let's look at another book. Let's look at Daniel. Let's look at Zechariah. Let's look at Haggai. Okay, everything has made sense in those two books together. And when you look at those two books, who are the two individuals anointed by God to accomplish his good work described in both books? Who is the guy that was described in the previous chapter as literally standing in the court of God? And you come back to Jeshua and Zerubbabel. He's saying, these two men are going to be these two olive trees that I am so going to fill with my Holy Spirit and my good purposes that they'll fill a bowl that will help light the way. And so that's the reason for the different description of the light as I see it, is the old structure with, with the, the, the six arms and the centerpiece, the, the seven lights, the way it was structured, it would have to be perpetually filled almost daily. But with the bowl, 
it's going to have an overflow. It's overflowing out of them. It fills the bowl. You don't have to worry about this light going out real quickly. I'm going to give you such an overflowing of my spirit that the light will be full in your day. Isn't that a desire of all of ours? It's still a golden lampstand. It's still holy. It's still accomplishing God's purpose. It's lighting God's presence around us. But in our day and age, he's taking it and he's restructuring it and making it new. And he's saying, you guys, you two individuals will be so impacted by my spirit that you'll light away and it'll be an overabundance of blessing coming from you. Here's your, our application today. God wants to do the same thing here at Covenant. A partnership of people called to his good purposes. Not just through pastors and preachers and teachers. We got a lot of teachers in this church because we got a school, right? God has blessed so many people with the spiritual gift of teaching in our area. And it's a natural tendency when you are blessed with an abundance of people with a specific spiritual gift that you can rely on them too much. But we not only need Yeshua's, we need Zerubbabel's. Yeshua's are people called to teach and preach and lead within the church body. But Zerubbabel's are construction workers and mechanics. People that work at West Virginia University or the radio station or are pharmacists or are nurses or whatever. I mean, the, the list goes on. God says, I need to use both filled with the Spirit, pouring in abundance. So why was this vision of this golden lampstand that reveals God's presence given to Zerubbabel? Because his life and his ministry and his calling was just as essential and worked in conjunction with Yeshua's to establish God's worship that would light the truth around the world. Do not decry the small things. Do not decry your calling. Well, I'm just this. No, you're not. You are exactly who God called you to be. And he delights at that wrench in your hands. He delights in that spoon in your hands. He delights in whatever paintbrush, whatever God has called you to do. He looks at that in your hand and says, yes, use it for my glory. Not by your might, not by your strength, but by my power. We see it with people like Truett Cathy who sought to honor God when he established his restaurant chain Chick-fil-A and said from the very get-go, I'm not going to serve on Sundays. Or David Green, the owner of Hobby Lobby, trying to fight for the rights of the unborn. And this isn't just true of CEOs or owners of major corporations. I think it can be true of any one of us. Where you work, where you live, in your home is your mission field. And you can shine the light wherever you are. You're partnering with those who are in full-time church ministry. But, but again, this is a model that God's saying, in this new way of doing things, of this new mentality, this new approach, one's not better than the other. It doesn't say that the flow coming out of Joshua was harder and faster than the flow coming out of Zerubbabel. It was an equal calling, an equal gifting, and together God's purposes were accomplished. This room is full of Zerubbabel's this morning. So I want you to do something for me this week. I want you to read this chapter over again. Chapter 4, Zechariah, 
And where you see the name Zerubbabel, although it's a great name, I want you to plug your name into there. I want you to believe the promises. Whatever he's put in your hand. So, you know, back when I was a 16-year-old kid and what was in my hand was an ice cream scoop and a cone, I was to use that for God's glory. When I was in college and I had a, a camera in one hand and a microphone in one hand, that was to use for God's glory. And now, as a grown adult and I have a sermon in one hand and a diaper in the other hand, I use that for God's glory, right? That's what we're called to do. And so I want you to fully embrace the vision that God has for you is not separate from the ministry of this local church. It's intrinsic toward it. Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you for, for your message to us today. Our calling is key. It's essential to what you want to do in North Central West Virginia and around the world. Even now as Emily Pumphrey and Mike and Jenny are, are in Hungary, obedient to the calling that you've had. They're joining the Depews who have gone on years before in Hungary, Lord God. Even now, as, as my, my, my father and Gilda are in Alabama and ministering here as well, and also missionaries to, to Southeast Asia, Lord God, you're calling. Uh, we have the Wardens, Lord God, who've been, who've been reaching out to, to Muslims and Uzbek people for years. Yes, Lord, th their calling is great, and, and, their, and their overflow of the Holy Spirit of what you're doing is flowing back into us. But God, help us not to decry the small things. Help us to not look at our own calling and our own ministry and, and, and put it on a scale. Help us all to hand you whatever you've handed to us, whether it is a wrench or a paintbrush, or a school book. Whatever you've entrusted to us, Lord, we want to give it back to you. And we don't want to rely on our own might or our own strength. And we know as we look at the mountains in our lives, it is impossible. But by your Spirit, you make mountains flat. And as we're reminded this morning, even through Billy's homecoming, that we do this all for a purpose and a reason, that we have a hope beyond life. When we see someone that's finished the, the race beautifully, God, and, and we've known them and we've seen them, we've seen their strengths and their weaknesses, their faults and their flaws and their victories, God, we say, it was by your spirit. And by that same spirit, Lord God, give us the victory. So in this moment, help us to not decry the small things, but to hand to you whatever you've placed in our hand and say, okay, Lord, I'm ready, not by my might, not by my strength, but by your Spirit. Fill me so much that I overflow so that your light can be seen, seen and your presence felt. In your name we pray, amen.